You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning, y'all. We will be in Genesis 28, uh, verses 10 through 12. You can find that in your sheetback Bible on page 16. My name is Will Baker. I'm a summer intern here. So it's nice to be with y'all this morning. All right, let's read. In verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is the none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took that stone that he had put under his head and set it for a pillar and poured oil on it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and he will keep me in this way that I go and and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you um, for this morning, Lord. I pray that you just speak through Jonathan this morning, God. Open our uh, hearts and our ears and our minds and let them fixate on your wondrous power and your word and uh, spirit move in this place. We need you so desperately, Lord. Um, So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few weeks, on July 7th, Dora and I will be celebrating our fourth wedding anniversary. Thank you, thank you. You you don't have to get us anything, uh, unless you want to. But in many ways, it's felt like it's been a lot longer than four years. I mean, with everything that's happened with COVID, and uh, we moved out here, and we've lived in four different locations since we've been married, a lot has happened. Uh, We even had a a, a baby uh, not too long ago. Uh, but I also remember a time when it felt like I was never going to get married. I mean, we got married at 29, and it felt like a lifetime before Dora and I even met. And I remember there was days I was super excited about meeting my future wife, and other times I felt like I was never going to meet a future wife. But in God's timing, eventually that happened. Dora and I met at a small school in Arkansas that no one's ever heard of, 
And after a few years of knowing each other, I finally asked her out. And for some reason, she said yes. A year later, I finally popped the question, and she agreed to marry me. And that's when the waiting really began. I mean, that engagement time, it takes forever. It was only six months for us, but it feels like it just drags on. I mean, there's so much planning and preparing and, and looking forward and expecting, and it just feels like it, it never gets there. And it's such a weird season. I mean, you're at a point when you've both committed to spending the rest of your life together. You've agreed that you want to be together, but there's still one crucial detail that hasn't happened yet that's vitally important. The wedding ceremony. That's the point when you come together and before God and, and the law and, and every uh, witness and say, I'm committed to you. That's the point when it becomes official, both legally and the eyes of our Creator. And without that, nothing else matters. You have to have that wedding ceremony for that to be official before God. It's that time when we enter into covenant relationship and we are committed to one another. Now, as we've been walking through Jacob's story, we've been waiting for a similar moment. You see, in the backdrop of Jacob's story is this promise. It was first given to Abraham that God would be his God and would bless him. And through him, he would bless all the nations of the earth and he would create a great nation out of him and he would give them the land of the Canaanites. Now, in the nature of that promise is that it would pass down from generation to generation. And it first went down to Isaac, and then when Isaac had two children, Esau and Jacob, it started to become clear that Jacob is indeed the one that God is choosing. I mean, in chapter 26, Rebekah had this uh, vision from God that her younger son Jacob would rule over the older, being the head of the household. And then later in chapter 28, beginning of 28, Isaac gave uh, Jacob the, the Abrahamic blessing. But there's still one crucial thing that's missing, one vital detail that meant everything. And without it, none of the other things matter. That's when God finally steps down from heaven, looks at Jacob and says, I will be your God. It's when God makes the initiation and when God establishes his government. And this morning, as we hop into our text, that moment has finally come. God reveals himself from heaven, shows up before Jacob, and we see in our text this morning how Jacob responds. And that's the point as we hop into our, our text this morning. Revelation and response. See, as we walk through this text, we were asking two crucial questions. How does God reveal himself to his people, and how are God's people to respond to God? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please open up to Genesis chapter 28 with me, and we'll be walking through verses 10 to 22. And the first question we will be looking at this morning as we walk through this text is how does God reveal himself to his people? Read with me in 10 and 11. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, as we hop in, we find 
Jacob traveling somewhere between Beersheba, where his parents live, and Haran, the land of his uncle, where he's heading. Now, we found out two weeks ago that Jacob set out on this 21-day journey under the pretense of finding a wife. Now, Jacob is certainly going to find a wife, but there's more going on behind the scenes. If you remember back, Jacob had to flee his homeland because he had cheated and stolen from his brother two times. And out of fury and rage, his older brother Esau set out on a plan to try to kill his younger brother. But Jacob's mother intervened and sent him to the land of Haran. So that's the situation as we hop into our text. And we see as we look at the details here in the text that Jacob's in a, in a pretty, pretty bleak situation. Because Jacob had to flee his homeland, he's alone. He's got no wealth or no money with him. He's just got the clothes on his back. And, and we see this place that he's come to as just some nameless place. And while we'll later find out what the name of this place is, there's a reason that this place isn't given a name here in our text. It's because our author, Moses, wants us to see this place as barren and bleak, as if there's nothing here. He is in an empty place. On top of that, we see here in the text that it says that night It was night because the sun had set, here in verse 11. Now, obviously it was night because the sun had set, but again, that's a crucial detail. See, what the author is illustrating for us is darkness setting in on Jacob. Jacob is going into this dark, lonely, empty place, all because of the choices that he made in his past. You see, Jacob is running from his sin. He is running from the situation that he put himself in, and he finds himself alone, lost, lonely. And we find here that he's taking a pillow to set a a rock to set up for a pillow underneath his head. So he has traded away the protection of his mother and father's house and is now living, laying on the ground with a stone for his pillow. And he is alone. At least he thinks he's alone. You see, as we read on, we find out that there's actually somebody with Jacob here in this situation, which we see here in verses 12 to 13. Read that with me. It says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, angels were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. Now, we learn here that as Jacob sleeps, he has a dream. And this is certainly not an ordinary dream. You see, this isn't a usual dream that he interprets to mean that God was with him. No, he is very clear that God has revealed himself in this dream. This is God's holy, unmistakable presence coming before Jacob. And as we see here in our text, as God reveals himself, we see three answers to the question the first question of our text. How does God reveal himself to, to his people? And the first answer we see here is that God reveals himself to make himself known. You see, the image of Jacob's dream is a ladder ascending and descending from heaven. And this is like something we've seen before in the book of Genesis. See, if you rem- remember back to Genesis chapter 11, After the flood, a group of people on earth came together and they tried to build a tower. 
And the goal of this tower was for its top to reach up to heaven. Now, in this scene, we see humanity fall infinitely short of trying to reach God. And it's kind of ironic. God has to come down from heaven to see what they're doing. But here we see a different story. This ladder successfully reaches its top all the way to heaven. And we see angels ascending and descending, going forth to do the will of God. But the most important figure here in the text is not those who use the ladder, but the one who stands above it. And we see him speaking out here from his eternal throne in verse 13. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. You see, here God reveals himself to be the same God who entered into covenant promise with Abraham and Isaac. And here he speaks forth from his eternal nature to reveal himself to this lost and lonely creature. Notice here how the Lord is spelled. Here in the text, we see the Lord spelled all with capital letters, identifying to us as readers that this is the name Yahweh. He says, I am Yahweh, which is God's eternal name, which means I am who I am. By using this name and designation, God is saying that I am the eternal one, the unchanging one, the one who came down from eternity, the one who spoke out creation and came down to bless your forefathers has now come to you. God has come to Jacob because Jacob cannot reach up to God. God has come down to humanity because in all of humanity's striving, They cannot know God without God's revelation. God is revealing himself to a creature who cannot know him without that revelation. And as we see as we read on, God has come down for a specific purpose. And that brings us to the second answer of our question. God reveals himself to bless his people. We see that here in verses 13 and 14. It says, The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, reading on, we hear that old, familiar promise, the one that we've heard repeated over and over and over again in the book of Genesis. It first came to Abraham a few generations earlier, and then to Isaac, and now has finally reached to Jacob. It's this covenant promise that has been hanging over Jacob's head ever since his birth. That long-expected, long-waited, long-strived-after promise. You see, throughout our text, Jacob has been fighting and, and striving and seeking after this promise. But it's only God who can give it. See, only God is able to bless Jacob. And in all his efforts to be the next patriarch, to be the next one in the line of Abraham, it's only because God intervened. Only God can bless his people. You see, that's what God does. God steps down from eternity to bless those who don't deserve it. In in revealing himself, God comes to people who don't deserve to look on his nature, and he blesses them with his hand of kindness, and that is what we call grace. 
God comes into the lives of people who are broken, sinful, lost, and desperate. God intervenes on, the ha- on behalf of those who are lost and lonely. And that's what we see here in the life of Jacob. Though Jacob is a sinner, though Jacob is a man who does not deserve God's grace, God chooses him because God loves him. And after him, God will choose the nation of Israel to bless them, even though they don't deserve his grace or his love. But because of the great promises that he has and his commitment to humanity, God will reach down and bless these people. And while we see angels going forth on the ladder to to bring forth God's will, what we find out as we read forward that it will be God who accomplishes his purpose in Jacob. And that's the third answer we see in our text here this morning. God reveals himself to accomplish his purpose. Read what he says to Jacob in verse 15. He says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. Now reading here, we learn an important truth. Something that sets apart the God of the Bible from the God of the nations. Well, the God of the nations in the ancient world were confined to certain places in time. We learn that our God is omnipotent. And what that means for us this morning is that God is not confined by places or time or matter. God is the creator of all things. He is in control of all things and nothing can contain him. By God saying that he will go with Jacob, he is not saying that he is leaving one place and going to another. He is saying that he will see his will be done. You see, God's commitment is not just to send forth his angelic forces into the life of Jacob, but for God to commit himself to this man and to go with him. See, when God makes a promise, he will see it done. And what that means for us this morning is that no matter where you go, if God has entered into covenant relationship with you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is nowhere you can go to outrun God. There is no sin or darkness that you can wander into that God will not find you. If God says he is with you, his will will be done in your life. God is so committed to his people that he steps down for eternity to enter into their life. And then we add up all of this revelation, all of what God is doing here in the life of Jacob. We see that God is entering in to covenant relationship with his people. See, God is stooping down to meet his creatures in the dust. God is stooping down to offer a hand of salvation, a hand of rescue to those who are lost and lonely. He is coming to rescue this man who is far off. This is the moment when God steps forward and says, will you be my bride? Will you walk with me? Will you be my Jacob? You see, we see here that this picture is pointing forward Uh, in Jacob's dream, to a time when God will enter into a relationship, not with just with Jacob, but with all of humanity. You see, the promise here is that through Jacob and his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so this promise is pointing forward to another. 
And of this other one, we read in Scripture that it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, uh, verse 3, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, this one who is to come is the one who would step forward to fulfill his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The one who would completely reveal the nature of God. And his name is Jesus. See, our text this morning is looking forward to when God will step down in the flesh to come and meet the brokenness of humanity, to be that rescue plan. And as Jesus says in John chapter 1, verse 51, he will be the bridge that brings humanity back to God. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, Jesus is pointing back to this dream of Jacob and saying, I am that bridge. I am the one who has come to rescue you. I am the one who has come to find you in your lostness, in your brokenness. I am the one who is coming to reveal the nature of God. And the question that we have now that we see that Jesus has come to reveal himself as the bridegroom who's been long awaited. How are we to respond? And that's our second question this morning. How are God's people to respond to God? Now, as we move forward, we will once again see three answers from our, our text to this question. And the first answer we see here is in verses 16 to 17. It says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. The first answer we see to the second question here in the, in the text is that God's people should respond to God in awe. Now, we see here in these verses that upon waking up from Jacob's dream, he realizes something he didn't recognize before. God is in this place. Though he thought this was a barren land, though he thought this was an empty place, he has now recognized the presence of God. He's now seen his glory, and we see his response here in the text, verse 17, and he was afraid. Now, we often view fear in our eyes as a bad thing, as if it's some sort of animal instinct that drives us away. But when we look at fear of God in the Bible, we always see it as a good thing. You see, the fear we're talking about here is a deep sense of awe. The fear we see of God in the Bible is a recognition that God is powerful and magnificent. Fear in the Bible is a realization that God is powerful and that he is present and that he is worthy to be feared because he is our creator. You see, fear of God in the Bible, for those who have entered into covenant relationship with him, is not the kind of fear that drives us away, but the kind of fear that draws us in. Fear of God in the Bible is the kind of fear that drives out all other fears, and keeps us longing for the presence of God. 
You see, what Jacob is doing is realizing that God is worthy. He is deserving of fear in nature because God is present. And as he recognizes the fear of the Lord, he also gives another response. This brings us to our second response here this morning. God's people must respond to God by bearing witness. Read what it says in verses 18 to 19. It says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on it. He called there the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Now, as we read on, we see a transformation start to take shape. Jacob has taken this stone that he was using as a pillow and now has set it up as a pillar. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with pillars in Scripture, they were typically used in one of two fashions. On one hand, these pillars could be set up as a place of worship. Here, which was very common amongst the nation, they would set up these pillars and they would come back time after time to offer sacrifices to their gods. Well, it's possible that Jacob was using this as a pillar here in in the text. There's a more plausible explanation that seems to follow the context a little better. You see, the second way that people use pillars in the ancient world was a place of remembrance. You see, in the ancient world, they would set up these stone pillars to commemorate an important meeting place between God and man. And notice here how Jacob is consecrating this pillar with oil. He is, in other words, setting this a place aside as holy. He's saying this is sacred ground. Because God has entered into this location, because God had met him here, he has now transformed this place into a new likeness. This place has become something new. And not only does he set up this this pillar, we see him making another transformation. You see, this place that was formerly nameless and barren and without identification, Jacob has given a new name. He's called it Bethel, the house of God. You see, what Jacob is saying is that this is God's dwelling place. This is where God comes down to meet man, and God comes down to meet humanity, and where humanity comes forward to worship God, and where God is revealed. All in all, by setting up this pillar and changing the name of this place, Jacob is bearing witness to the Lord. Later on in the book of Genesis, Jacob will come back to this place. He will see that stone pillar. He will call this place Bethel, and he will remember. He will remember that God gave him this promise, that no matter where he went, God would be with him. He will remember that promise that God, that God said he would bring him back to this land and that God would achieve his purpose. But this pillar wasn't just a sign for Jacob. It would also be a sign for future generations. You see, when Israel would finally be brought back from the land, when they were rescued from the land of Egypt, they too would come into this land and they would see that pillar in the land of Bethel. And they would say, remember the promise that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That promise is for us. 
You see, when we are in awe of the Lord, when we recognize His holiness and His covenant in our lives, we not only bear witness to ourselves, but we bear witness to others. We set up these signs and these proclamations and we give testimony that God has made a great and wonderful promise. God has done something magnificent in our lives. He has made this holy ground. You see, we are called to respond to God by bearing witness to remind our hearts of God's testimony and to proclaim that testimony to others. But we also see here as we continue on in the text that Jacob was not just setting up physical signs. He was also committing his life to the God who revealed himself. And that brings us to our third and final answer here this morning. God's people must respond to God through commitment. Read with me in 20 to 23. It says, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I will go and will bring me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give to you a 10th. Now, as we continue on to the last verses of our text, we find out that Jacob has made a vow. And you may have noticed how this vow was formulated. He gives an if-then statement. If you will do this, then I will do that. Now, it's easy to read in the the text and, and think that Jacob is somehow saying, well, God, only do my part if you do your part. But what Jacob is actually doing is he's formulating a vow in a way that was very common in their culture. In reality, Jacob is making a huge step of faith. He's saying, since you promised these things, since you have said you will do these things, you will be my God. What Jacob is doing, in other words, is repeating back what God has said he will do to him. And we see here in the text, what God is expecting of the Lord is actually pretty simple. He says in 20 and 21, he says, if you will be with me and will keep me and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I may come again to my father's house in peace. You see, Jacob is asking here for the bare minimum. He's not asking for great wealth or prosperity. He's not asking to be wise and rich. He is simply asking for the Lord to take care of him. This is like Jesus' prayer where he says, give us this day our daily bread. He's saying, God, meet my needs. Bring me back to this land like you said you will, and I will be committed to you. You see, Jacob is repeating back what God has already promised promised him, and Jacob is responding in faith. This vow is Jacob standing at the altar of marriage and saying, repeating back his vows and giving his I do. But Jacob here is not just responding to the Lord by the spoken word. He's also committing to take action. We see here in verse 22 that Jacob commits to giving God a tenth of everything that he gives to him. Now, this is what we call in the Bible a tithe. A tithe is a tenth of everything that we have that is given back to the Lord in an act of worship. By giving a tithe, what we are doing is we are recognizing God's providential hand, his provision in our lives to provide for us, and saying, everything I have belongs to you. 
It's acknowledging that the Lord has provided. It is giving back in an act of worship, saying, God, what I have is yours. We see this pattern picked up in the temple years later, and we see this practice picked up in the New Testament. Well, the word tithe is not found in the New Testament. We hear over and over that we are called to give generously and by the means that God has given us. See, we are called to tithe as an act of worship. If you acknowledge that God has given to you, we are called to give back to the Lord. We are recognizing that God is with us. And when we add up all of Jacob's responses and we put them all the, together, what we see is that Jacob is, is worshiping the Lord. He is standing before the Lord in awe and recognizing his holy presence. He is bearing witness to what the Lord has promised and he is committing in his vow and his actions to follow the Lord. See, Jacob is saying that because you are with me, I will go with you. A transformation is happening. This is the moment when God and Jacob come together and their lives follow a pattern where we are going on the same path, the same tra trajectory. We are going to the same place because you are my God. This is the moment when that covenant becomes reality. When Jacob responds in faith and commits his life to the Lord. As we look forward in the Old Testament, we will see this pattern of worship picked up by the nation of Israel. You see, when God rescued Israel from Egypt, he met them just like he met Jacob at the mountain of Sinai. God came down in holy smoke and fire, and he met his people there, and he said, I will be your God. And he gave them the temple. See, that temple that was built in Israel was meant to be God's dwelling place, the house of God. Not built on one stone, but built on many stones, where the people would come year after year, week after week, to come forward and lift up praises of awe before their God to recognize his holy presence, to bear witness to his goodness, and to give offerings of sacrifice. And while that temple was a place that God's people could meet and see God's revelation, what we also see in the Old Testament is that temple was inadequate. You see, while God revealed himself in the temple, while God made his presence known, there was a separation See, there was a, a veil that separated God from man. There was a veil and a border that separated God from his people, and that veil could not be crossed. We were looking for another. And as we look forward to the coming of Jesus, of that ladder that ascended and descended from heaven, Jesus came down to tear open that void that separated us from God, to render us free from the sin that clung to us, to bring us into God's holy presence that we could see his nature and we could respond in worship. This morning, if you have come to know Jesus Christ, you can openly, freely walk before the presence of the eternal creator of heaven and earth. 
Jesus is the only path that brings us to God's temple. Jesus is the only path that brings us before his holy presence. And what the Bible says is that if you are in Christ, you are built up in Jesus as a new temple, a new house of God. You see, what we learn in the New Testament is that anyone who responds in faith in Jesus, you are God's house and God is in this place. See, when we come together here as a church on Sunday mornings, we don't just come together to sing songs and hear a lecture on biblical ideas. We come to stand in God's presence. And though this may look like a normal place, though this may look like any other building, we are standing with Jesus because you are God's house. Because Jesus gave his life to take away your sins and your reproach and tear down that border by which that separated us from God. Jesus has not only become the means by which we worship, but the object of our worship. The Bible says that we are called to lift high the name of Jesus, to lift high his praises and lift him in the highest because he is worthy as we look to the book of Revelation, we see that all of creation, all the redeemed, stand before his eternal throne and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's to Jesus we sing our hallelujahs. It's to Jesus we lift high our praises and say, you are God. And because of you, we can stand in your presence. This morning, as we prepare to continue in a time of worship by singing praises to the Lord, I urge you, fix your eyes on Jesus. Though we may not see him now in the flesh, I assure you that when we gather, he is with us and his name is worthy to be praised. This morning, as we prepare to worship him, no holding back. Praise the one who redeemed you from your brokenness, who found you in your lostness, and who has set you before the throne of God. Let's now go to a time of prayer and set our eyes on Jesus. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you found us in our broken, barren place. We thank you that you set out on your rescue plan to take on flesh, to take your sins, our sins on your shoulder, and to lay down your life for us. Jesus, because you have come in great beauty and great power, you have revealed to us the nature and the trueness of God. So this morning, we lift high your holy name because you are worthy. It's in your name I pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.